Well, let's do it. You've got questions. We've got answers. Phone lines are open. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to the broadcast. It's Friday, which means you've got questions. We've got answers. Number to call, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. As long as your question is appropriate for Christian radio, and as long as it ties in on some level with what we talk about on the show, you know, if you want to talk about sports or something like that, that's not going to be the issue unless it it intersects with moral, cultural, or spiritual issues. But all of the questions on the table, whether you agree with me or disagree with me, 866-34-TRUTH. And we are going instantly to the phones. We'll start with Chris in Texas. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, hello, Dr. Brown. Thank you for taking my call. Sure thing. Uh, I have, yeah, I have a, I have um, a question about uh, Galatians 4, 21. Um, mm-hmm. My question is uh, in regards to the law and how Paul um, referenced uh, the story of uh, Hagar and Sarah and Abraham. Yeah. Um, and in, in Galatians 4.21, he says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? And then he references the story of Abraham and Hagar and Sarah. Well, my question is, um, being that he he referenced a uh, story from the book of Genesis. Um, is that technically the law? Um, and if so, and I, I know it's the Torah, but is, is it technically the law uh, as it pertains to the law of Moses? And um, could you please clarify whether or not it is or isn't? Yeah, that that's a wonderful question and one that very few people actually think of asking. So the word Torah can mean teaching, instruction, law, and it can refer to the five books of Moses, or it can refer to a specific law. You know, this is the Torah of this or that. And then for a traditional Jew, Torah is all of traditional Jewish literature, five books of Moses, Talmud, rabbinic literature, etc. So when, when Paul, though, says the law, he's speaking of the five books of Moses because that is known as the Torah, right? So here in the Tree of Life version Tell me, you who want to be under Torah, don't you understand the Torah? So the five books of Moses are not all law. They are not all legal material. They are not all part of the Sinai covenant, right? The book of Genesis is before the Sinai covenant. Uh, Part of Exodus is before the Sinai covenant. So it is not all part of the Sinai covenant. And in that sense, God's legal contract with Israel. So it's not law in that sense. But it's because it's the Torah, which for Paul would be Hanamas, the law, it's called the law. So it's in general, God's Torah, his teaching, his instruction law, but specifically, it's not part of the Sinai covenant itself. Oh, okay. So um, I guess my follow-up question would be, um, in, I guess, biblical interpretation or translation, when they use the original um, languages, would it be better to, instead of 
Um, I mean, and I don't know what it says in the original Hebrew, but um, what does the original Hebrew even refer to it being called the law that you know, or the original Greek would it, would it refer yeah. to it being uh, called the law? So, so in other words, the translation you read in English is an exact translation of the Greek. It's exactly what the Greek says. The word namos means law, so it can refer to the five books of Moses as a whole or the laws within it. Uh, if, <laughs> excuse me, Paul was writing in Hebrew and he referred to ha-Torah, the Torah, the Torah would mean the five books of Moses. Uh, the Torah is God's teaching slash law but it doesn't quite have the same nuance of law that we say in English. But that, what you have there in Galatians 4, Chris, is an exact translation of the Greek, just the way Paul wrote it, and that's rightly translated with, if you want to be under the law, don't you know what the law says? So, yeah, there are two different aspects to the law. They're meaning the Sinai Covenant and the five books of Moses, but let's just say that they're like hand in a glove, in the larger context. But thanks for your questions. And one last thing, there is massive discussion when Paul talks about law. Does he mean five books of Moses specifically? Does he mean law in general? Does he mean the Sinai covenant specifically? There's massive scholarly debate about that subject. So you actually asked a question with a massive answer, but thank you, sir, for asking it. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Eugene. Uh, somehow I don't know where you are, just that we got flooded with calls as we do at the beginning of the show. So where are you calling from, sir? I'm calling from Fortville, Oklahoma, Dr. Brown. How are you? Okay, great. I'm doing very well. Thanks. All right, your question. Amen. Good to speak with you, sir. So my question uh, is just regarding, you know, uh, the sufficiency of Scripture, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. I do believe in absolute truth. I've had wonderful experiences with the Lord, but I find myself, like, after watching so many debates, um, you know, you and Dr. White, and how many people really don't believe in, in 2 Timothy 3.16, they don't believe that all of the Word of God is, is, is inspired. Mm -hmm. And so my question is, um, you know, is the Bible, you know, a, a perfect book? Like, are there any flaws? And if it's not, what do you think I could answer a skeptic's question on there's so much debate on manuscripts, like the ending, ending of Mark, for example. You know, I, I want to read my Bible with confidence, saying, like, yes, this every single word was spread out by God. Every single word is true. Um, and I'm just wondering, from your perspective, is that really the way to read the Bible? And if so, how would you explain all the controversy between disputed manuscripts there? Yeah, thank you for the question, Eugene. So the first thing is, if the Bible is not truly God's Word, if it is truly not his infallible communication to us, then how do we know what's accurate and what's not accurate? Did Jesus really die on the cross? Did he really rise from the dead? Did the children of Israel really come out of Egypt? You know, how do we know what's reliable and what's not? Is Proverbs just giving opinions and some are better than others? How do we know? Uh, is Paul writing a letter? It's a good letter, and maybe there's some divine inspiration in it. When the prophet said, Ko Amar Adonai, thus says the Lord, and Neuma Adonai, utterance of the Lord, or Pi Adonai Diber, the mouth of the Lord is spoken. When the prophet said those things, were they making them up or exaggerating? So once you say it's not the word of God and cannot be taken as the word of God, then anything's possible. And we have no more reason to believe what's written there than in another book purporting to be a holy book. Now, that doesn't mean that the Bible does not record things that are, that are untrue. In other words, 
in the in the book of Job, you have a debate between the friends, and when you get to Job forty two seven, the friends and Job, God says that the friends didn't speak rightly about him as Job did, even though the Lord has re- rebuked Job for much of what he said. So there's stuff recorded that you now have to interpret rightly, right? And there are historical situations that are just recounted, and now based on the rest of Scripture, we are to draw moral conclusions about those things. But that being said, if the Bible is not God's infallible word and it's authoritative communication, then the sky's the limit. So what do we do with manuscript disputes and things like that? I would treat this, Eugene, the same way I would treat a discussion about abortion. If someone says, well, what about rape and incest or the health of the mother? You say, okay, If we look at those categories, they amount to less than 1% of abortions nationally. So can you agree on the other 99%? And most people will say, no, we differ there. That's going to be the biggest issue. What you need to say is the Bible is far and away the best preserved book in the ancient world. When you compare it with other ancient books, it's staggering. We have a short video that that lays that question out. (laughs) Yeah. So it it is preserved far better than any other book in the ancient world. And where there are manuscript differences, they do not affect any major doctrine. In other words, the 99% is full agreement in terms of all major doctrines. The disagreement about the, the longer ending of Mark, nothing stands or falls on that because everything that's taught there, you can find taught elsewhere in the New Testament in terms of anything of importance. So That's what I would say. When you look at it, you're staggered by how well it has been preserved, which would be in keeping with the fact that God wanted it preserved for us. And the manuscript errors are are such that no major doctrine depends on it. And God wants us to use our brains. Uh, There's a science called textual criticism, lower criticism, as opposed to higher criticism, which is more philosophical and and authorship issues and things like that. And there's there's scientific study by which you can determine the best reading so that even there, there are very few areas, excuse me, of serious dispute among scholars as to what the text actually says. And that's how I'd respond. But I said, well, let's, let's major on what we, we agree on. Cause there's no disagreement on the manuscripts on this and this and this and this and this and this and this and, and, and put it back in their court that way. All right. Yes, sir. So you, you don't think the 1%, you know, Hey, this might not be a part of the Word of God, you don't think that will contradict Jesus when he said, you know, every word is, is reliable? You don't think that contradicts it in any way, sir? No, no, because every word he spoke is true. And his words are spirit and life, and his words will out endure the heavens and the earth. The question, do we know 100% without any possible question that Jesus said this, this, this? Well, we are in agreement on all of this, and then, say, the longer ending of Mark, you have a few sayings of Jesus there, right? Those are about the only words that are in dispute because of manuscript. We don't, okay, so we'll leave those out. What we are sure of is 100% sure. And if, in fact, he said those words, those are 100% sure as well. So whatever he said is 100% sure. That's what I want to emphasize. And we are almost 100% sure about every word that's recorded attributed to him. Yes, sir. Thank you for your time, Dr. Brown. I love you guys. All right. Thanks, man. I appreciate the questions. 866-34-TRUTH. Okay, listen. Today, so on my clock, Eastern Standard Time, it's 314 and ticking. Eastern Standard Time, right? PM. 
a little over, what, an hour, 25 minutes from now. So our show ends in 45 minutes. And then 50 minutes after that, so I'm sorry, hour and 35 minutes, I'm going to come back on on YouTube. So if you're watching on YouTube right now, all right, or if you're watching on Facebook, head over to YouTube, 4.50 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So that's an hour and 35 minutes from now. 50, five zero minutes after the show is over, I'm coming back on on YouTube and doing an exclusive chat for our YouTube audience where the entire focus, I'm going to share a few things, and then the entire focus, I'm going to be looking at my screens and just answering questions you post on YouTube. So I'm going to come back and go straight to the phones, get to as many calls as I can. But if you'd like to post a question for me, don't do it now on YouTube. Come back for our chat later this afternoon. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the broadcast, 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Jen in Michigan. Welcome to The Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. I can't believe I'm actually talking to you. But, um, Here we are. I've been following you since 2005, so I love you. I've talk to you you've been to my church my brother went to your school so um i love your ministry so thank you for being awesome um i have two questions you're welcome um my first one is regarding jude 20 so i was saved at a spirit-filled church so i've only ever thought that was talking about speaking in tongues and i talked to someone recently and they said it's not and i didn't know i still believe it is but i guess i wanted to ask your opinion on that if it is and if it's not i guess or if it is why it is So Jude speaks of building ourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. I certainly believe it includes speaking in tongues. There's no question to me that praying in the Holy Spirit is, uh, uh, when you speak in tongues, you are praying in the Spirit. There's zero question about that. However, I don't believe that it only means speaking in tongues. For example, if you go to Ephesians, the sixth chapter, beginning of verse 19, Paul talks about praying in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and intercessions. So he's obviously talking about praying with your understanding as well. When you pray in tongues, you're praying with your spirit, not with your understanding. So you can pray in the Spirit in English as the Holy Spirit's leading you and anointing you, and you pray for different requests. And certainly you can pray in the Spirit as you pray in tongues because it's the Holy Spirit praying through you. So I don't believe it's limited to tongues, but it certainly includes tongues. Okay, wow, yeah. So you're basically saying it's what Ephesians says, which would be all kinds of prayer. That's really awesome. I never saw it that way. Yeah, um, sure. And then my other question was sola scriptura. I've never heard of that term, but I've always believed it, and I discovered it from you. But um, I know recently you talked um, about a book. I don't know. I listen to a lot of videos, so it might not be recent, but it's on your channel. I think it was a Jewish book, you said, if you're trying to learn about why we believe it, if you have people that tell you it's not real. I think you said volume five or something. I was wondering what that book was. And also, if you could give like a pretend I was five years old or maybe 10, um, how to explain why we believe that. Because I do, I just don't know why I do, I guess. Exactly. Right. So, sola scriptura means scripture alone. 
that that is our basis of faith and authority. If you're a traditional Jew, you believe that God gave a written law and then an oral law, and then the oral law has been passed on and developed through the generations, so you have Jewish tradition. So if you are a traditional Jew, you follow the Bible in light of Jewish tradition. If you are a traditional Catholic, you follow the Bible, Old and New Testament, in light of Catholic tradition. And Catholic leaders could make a decision today, and the Pope could verify it, and that could become Catholic tradition, even if it's not taught in the Bible. We say, with all respect to the traditions, some of which are good and some of which are bad, we base our faith on Scripture alone, sola scriptura, so only Scripture. Meaning, you may have a really interesting teaching in your church, great, but what does the Bible say? Well, the church historically may have gone in this direction, fine, but what does the Bible say? And we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. That's sola scriptura. If I was referring to volume five, it would have been my five-volume series, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus. And in that volume, I explain why we don't follow rabbinic tradition and why we base our faith on Scripture alone as opposed to Scripture plus Jewish tradition. And the same arguments would hold for Scripture plus later church tradition. All right? Okay, so that's, like, if I read that book, it'll help me understand, like, I think there's a verse in Timothy or something where it basically, like, why we believe the Bible over traditions, like if a Catholic person or whoever. No, um, it won't, it won't help. It won't help you at all unless you're dealing with traditional Jews. No, it's the wrong book for that. What I would do is, is just go online and type in Sola Scriptura and you'll find a number of books written by evangelicals or articles that will explain our position. So that book is very specialized and only if you were dealing with traditional Jews. All right. Uh, so All right. you should write now. <laughs> yeah. All right. Hey, Jen, thanks so much. And I, I don't know which student you're referring to as your brother, but say hi for me. Okay. He's Jorge. If you remember him. Ah, but, okay. Yeah, I will. Awesome. Thank <laughs> you, Jen. God bless you. Yep. You too. All right. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Craig and Baton Rouge. Welcome to the line of fire. Yes, sir. God, thank you. God bless you, sir. Appreciate you so much. Uh, Question on uh, Genesis 1-1. I'm, I'm hearing a variant translation, supposedly from the Hebrew, that it's not in, in the beginning, that there's no definite article, no hey before the better sheet, and that means it could be mean a beginning, as if there could have been multiple beginnings. Is that uh, is that accurate? Uh, no, that, uh, no it, it's, it's, that's a misnomer. It is, in fact, written Bereshit, which is literally in, in the beginning or by way of beginning, as opposed to Bereshit in the beginning. But it, you cannot infer from that multiple beginnings. The other way to translate is that the Hebrew would be what's called a construct phrase, that the, the first word ties in with the word or words that follows. So the way many traditional under Interpreters understand it as Bereshit Baralohim, when God began to create, or in the beginning of God's creating. So, now having said that, the Greek translation understands it, the Septuagint, to to be in the beginning, as we have in John 1 1 reflecting that. The Targum, which is an an early Aramaic Jewish tradition, understands it to be saying in the beginning. 
So this is a, right. a strong traditional understanding going back to early Jewish sources that it means in the beginning. If, if that's not the right, right way to translate it, it's saying when God began, in the beginning of God's creating the heaven and the earth. So it's not talking about multiple beginnings. It still is the starting right. point. But the question is, should right. it be translated in the beginning or not? Or should it be translated when God began to create the heavens and the earth, the, the earth being formless void, etc.? Right. Then God said, let there be light. So that's where their scholarly debate is. Right. Appreciate that. Then if you have time for the question that follows, the yeah, next sure. verse, where it's, uh, you know, the earth was uh, without form and void, uh, I can't say it right, but yeah, you know. you're you're very close. Yeah, tohu vavohu. Yeah, is it? Yeah, right. So, uh, is it? Does it? Does the grammar say it became or it was without form? And right. So, yeah, you uh, know the argument there. Yeah, yeah, of, of course. So, so So, does it say and the earth was formless and void, or the earth had become? There is something called pluperfect, which would be referring to it It had become. And the grammar does allow for that. In other words, when you have the noun first, because you only have the verb first, when you have the noun first and followed by the verb in this form, it is possible to translate the earth had become formless and void. It's also possible mm -hmm. to read it that the earth was formless and void, just with an emphasis being put on the state of the earth. And the vast majority of scholars read it as was the idea that it's saying here for the gap theory, Genesis one, one in the beginning, right. God created the heavens and the earth. Okay. So there was the first heaven, uh, there was the heavens and the earth and there was an Adamic race and, and they sinned and God destroyed the whole world and everything got totally messed up. And that's why the earth is formless and void, etc. And, right. and, and the spirits of those human beings are now demons inhabiting the earth, and then God started the second time. There's, there's not a hint of that anywhere in Scripture. Right. And everything refers right. back to that beginning creation when God created the universe in, 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 in six days and six nights. So, yeah, it's, it right. is possible grammatically, sir, but it is highly, highly unlikely and against the larger context of the text there and how it's read and used elsewhere. Now, it answers questions about you know, science in the Bible, and it answers questions about uh, how, uh, how the, you know, why God starts with formless and void and darkness and things like that. But if you understand that a great purpose of Genesis 1 is to show God as a redeemer, that right from creation, he brings light out of darkness, he brings order out of chaos, he subdues the chaos powers of water and the demonic forces behind it and brings everything out in an orderly way that reproduces after its kind, then you can read Genesis 1 very redemptively uh, without trying to, to make some of these other things work. But it, it's not invalid. It's just highly unlikely. Thank you, sir, for the questions. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, all right. As soon as we get back, we'll get right to the phones. Let me see if my article is up on the stream. Let's see. Uh, is it? Is it up? Uh, don't see it up, probably up on our, on, on Ask Dr. Brown. I've got an article, if you missed it yesterday, are Jews who believe in Jesus still Jews? And then I wrote an article last night when Twitter blocked Mother Teresa. 
So you want to read that. And we've also got a video commentary on that. So that's all at askdrbrown.org. You can read, you can watch. And if you appreciate what we're doing, if you appreciate this radio broadcast and us making our available, uh, ourselves available to you as much as possible to answer your questions, we do this with your help. We are listener-sponsored and viewer-sponsored. We are not underwritten in any other way than your help and God's gracious supply through you. So go to our website, AskDrBrown.org. You just click on Donate. If you're watching on YouTube, you see a dollar sign uh, beneath where it says Ask Dr. Brown. So I guess kind of bottom left of the screen there. Uh, you see that. You can just click on that and make a donation that goes right through uh, working with YouTube. So thank you for your help. Thank you for your support. We'll be right back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to the Line of Fire. You've got questions. We've got answers. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Tim in Colorado. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, thank you for taking my call. You're very welcome. Um, uh, my question is... Uh, I've listened to your talking about post-trib versus pre-trib, and I've always yeah. been ambivalent on that. But um, I see what you're saying about what the scriptures say. I have one question, though, one thing I'm struggling over, and that is uh, the imminence of Christ's return. I get that if you're a post-trib, you, you don't necessarily believe that, uh, which I'm still kind of wrapping my mind around, because that's how I was taught. But um, the one scripture that I'm struggling with, though, is Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Mm-hmm. where Paul talks about, I guess it's the Antichrist or whoever that person is, uh, setting himself up in the temple of God. Um, yeah. As a post-trib, would, would you say that a post-trib has to believe that Jesus can't come back until there is a temple for that to happen, and therefore um, it's going to be a while before he comes back? Or is there another alternative interpretation for what that passage could mean? Um, yeah, that's what I'm wondering about. Yeah, so certainly there's a, another interpretation for what the passage could mean, uh, setting himself in the temple of God, since the church is elsewhere called the temple of God. People of God are called the temple of God in the New Testament. We are, we are corporately called the temple of God, 1 Corinthians 6. We are individually called the temple of God, 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 3. Corporately, we're called the temple of God, 1 Corinthians 6. Individual bodies, the temple of God, Ephesians 2, 1 Peter 2 tell us that we are the temple of God. So it could certainly be a false Messiah, false Christ within the church who then proclaims himself to be God. Those kinds of things have happened many times along the way, you know, a false leader, and now they claim to be divinity, deity. So it could easily have that spiritual interpretation. That's one thing. The other thing is to believe in imminence does not necessarily mean any second. It, it means at the door. It means that suddenly he could come and break in on history. So because we don't have an infallible interpretation of, of everything that's there, for example, the question of what he means by the temple of God, does he mean it spiritually or does he mean it literally and physically? And you can make an argument both ways. 
So because of that, you can't be just saying, well, you can't be coming for 50 years or a hundred years, or, you know, it's not going to happen in our lifetimes. No, things could turn overnight in society in 24 hours from now, the world looks completely different than it, than it looked. Things that we would think are going to take years, decades can happen in a matter of, of minutes. So we don't know how quickly things could shift, but we do know that Jesus did give us signs and that he did say, when these things begin to happen, then lift your heads for your redemption draws near. He also, remember this, Matthew 24, right? He also said, this is going to happen. This is going to happen, but the end is not yet. So don't think with every last thing that happens that the end must be here at the door. Now, where has there been a greater error? Has there been a greater error with Christians in our generation saying, he's not coming for 50 or 100 or 1,000 years? Or we're thinking, ah, this is it. Here he's coming now. Ah, it's got to be within this time. Ah, these are the signs it has to be. I think we've made more of an error with setting dates than with putting his coming off. And I'd be more concerned with wrong date setting than with a sober waiting. And again, the emphasis of the New Testament is to live in certain way in light of his appearing. Everyone that's lived so far and died, they have not seen that appearing, but we were called to live a certain way because of the what of what will take place. Uh, Dr. Keener, in fact, in our book, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, has a great section where he gives all the verses about how we're supposed to live in light of the second coming. And none of them have to do with timing. All of them have to do with the reality of what's going to take place. But certainly Paul says these things must happen first, but they could happen suddenly. Yeah. And I agree with all of that. I think that a lot of the, a lot of the focus is on the timing instead of how we're supposed to be living our lives and being prepared for his return. Um, Do you personally, uh, have an opinion on how to interpret that passage in Second Thessalonians chapter two? Do you think he's referring to uh, the temple as the Jewish temple, or I, do you not have a position yourself? I believe he's referring to a physical third temple in Jerusalem, not primarily based on that passage, but primarily based on the Olivet Discourse in Matthew twenty-four, Mark thirteen, Luke twenty-one, mm-hmm. where where I see right. there a, a recapitulation that just like you had. Jewish people scattered and regathered in times past, and then there's the final scattering and final regathering, uh, that, that I do believe that much of what happened in 70 and much of the attack against Jerusalem and that, that there will be a Jewish Jerusalem that comes under world attack at, at, during which time God delivers us, Zechariah 12, Zechariah 14. And based on Matthew 24 and, and the abomination of desolation, there was something that happened in 70. I believe there's something that's going to happen at the end of the age. And, and I don't think it's a coincidence that you have a tiny remnant of Jews working eagerly to rebuild the temple. Again, it's a tiny remnant that are focused on it. But I, I'm, not, I'm not saying nothing can happen because the temple is not built. In other words, right. I'm not that dogmatic about it. But in my opinion, well, yes, I expect that. Well, could it not even, could you take a more general interpretation just to say whatever is on the Temple Mount, such as the mosque or somebody, you know, standing on the mount? declaring something yeah, that doesn't have to be built. I, 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 don't, I don't think so, but it's possible. Okay. All right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yep. Again, I'm, that's my whole thing about not being dogmatic on that. Hey, Tim, thanks for the call and the discussion, and just keep doing what you're doing, honestly studying the Scripture. 
for truth. Let's go to Zach in Kentucky. Welcome to the line of fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown. I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller, so thank you so much for getting to my question. Well, awesome. Welcome to the show, Zach. Thank you so much. So uh, my question actually had to do with ancient languages as well. I know that you're kind of uh, good in that area. I ran into a, a lady at the grocery store a couple of weeks ago who was pretty adamant on uh, proclaiming to me that the word God was uh, a pagan word yeah. that meant demon or deceiver, and yeah. uh, that Judaism had hijacked that and all that. And I had really no way to respond to her. I know it's kind of like a he said, she said type deal because she didn't have any sources, obviously. Uh, but I was just wondering your thoughts on that. Was she a church-going person, by the way? Uh, she had been. Let's uh. just put it that way. She's very, very lost, uh, very confused. But she, she had been in church at, at uh, a Got long it. period of her life. Got it. Yeah. I mean, first thing, uh, you know, you could just talk about the days of the week. You know, it's Sunday, the day that we worship the sun god you know, or Monday, the day that we worship the moon God, or are these just names of days that we just use as names of days? And is there any issue with whatever it originally meant? You know, you want to expose the folly of the argument. And that's why I asked uh -huh. if she was church going, you say, what day do you go to church? So you go to church on the day that people worship the sun, <laughs> you know, so you want to expose the folly of things. But, and also if she knew Hebrew, she would know that one of the names for, for God or the word God in Hebrew, El, was the name of the chief Canaanite deity. So you have texts, you know, dating from the days of, of Moses, roughly, in, in a little bit north of Israel, a place called Rashamra, which, which would be in, in, in Syria today. And they document that the, the head of the Canaanite pantheon was a deity named El. And, and, and that is the, the Hebrew name for God. So... Hmm. You know, what does that prove? Proves nothing. Just proves the word meant God. And so, so the word for God simply means God. And, and look, if I call you a nice guy, if you trace the etymology of nice, it goes back to French and it means idiot. Am I calling you an idiot or am I? So the word means God, simple. Our word for Lord means Lord. Our word for God means God. And here, let's just, here, we'll, we'll do this. Okay, so we'll, we'll type out etymology of God in English, all right? And, um, okay, origin and meaning of God by online. All right, old English God, what did it originally mean? Supreme being, deity, Christian God, image of God, God-like person from protodynamic Guthan, uh, old Saxon, which is of uncertain origin. All right, so even here <laughs> in an etymological dictionary, it's uncertain what the word came from if you go back language after language after language, but what it's understood is it means the supreme being, the supreme deity, and that's why you have the same, you know, the same word in German, you know, Gottes, the, the, the same word is used because it means God. So people get hung up on these crazy things, and it's, you know, but you do what you do to try to bring them into reality. You can't always do it, but you do your best. Yes. Uh, well, thank you so much for that. I, I'd actually looked at another one of your videos on uh, your website about Mithra because she went into that too. So uh, that was the yeah. only that was the only leftover part that I hadn't had answered. <laughs> so you, you definitely uh, knocked it out of the park on that. Yeah, and you know the Mithra stuff is like you have all these exact parallels. Yeah, because that's the stuff on internet comes after Christianity. Right. So <laughs> now you create create all of it. Hey, thank you for the call and being a faithful listener. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. All right. Eight six six. Three, four, truth. 
Let's go to Karen in Florida. Welcome to the line of fire. Well, thank you, Dr. Brown. Um, I have a question on the seven Noahide laws. Um, and there's a, a couple on YouTube. I think they're a Messianic couple who are uh, talking about the dangers of the Noahide laws and that uh, President Trump has endorsed uh, the Noahide laws. And if you read closely, it could mean that Christians could possibly be beheaded. Yeah. And um, there, there are actual several sites right now that are really um, talking about this. So I, I really wanted to know what you, what your yeah. opinion on all this is. You know, when I was when I was a young guy, I had a really thick head of hair. I still got a decent amount of hair, but you know, it, it's thin. If my hair wasn't important, I'd, I'd be pulling it all out <laughs> over this <laughs> over this question here. Okay, uh, I have recently this is like the big thing now that's out there. There's seven Noahide laws, and if they're enforced, Christians could be beheaded. Right. Okay, there is more right. truth. There is more truth to the idea that Santa Claus personally delivered presents to every child in America last Christmas. There is more truth to that or that Elvis Presley is alive and well and producing a new album along with Michael Jackson. Okay. There's more truth mm -hmm. to that than this myth, which is complete and utter nonsense. So where in the world are people getting this idea from? I, I will explain on the other side of the break, but I am so glad that you asked the question those those who are watching you saw my expression when the question was being asked all right so what are the seven Noahide laws and is there a chance that if these are enforced that christians will be beheaded we'll answer that when we come back everyone let out a loud sigh with me oh, thank you It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on The Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH. Okay, back to Karen in Florida. First, what are the seven laws of Noah? These are seven laws deduced by rabbinic tradition from Genesis, the ninth chapter. I say deduced by rabbinic tradition because you don't find them all explicitly there. But these are laws against, uh, against idolatry, against cursing God, against murder, against adultery and sexual immorality, against theft, against uh, eating flesh torn from a living animal, and the mandate to establish courts of justice. Okay. Were these enforced by Jews on the world? No, that was never the purpose. The purpose was to say this, that Judaism has the Torah. Judaism has the 613 commandments, has expanded rabbinic tradition into thousands of subdivisions. That's what Jews are called to live by. But Gentiles are not called to live by it. So how does a Gentile live a righteous life? Well, according to a traditional Jew, by keeping these laws. They don't need to follow the Torah. They don't need to follow the dietary laws. They don't need to follow these other things. But if they do those things, that they'll be considered righteous in God's sight, and according to Judaism, the righteous of all nations have a place in the world to come. And some of those laws are reflected in Acts, the 15th chapter, when the apostles 
agree not to put the entire law of Moses on Gentile believers, but to give them some basic guidelines to start with. Those come from this same uh, material. So that's all it is. You say, well, where are people getting this idea from? There is a passage in the Law Code of Moses Maimonides. Maimonides lived from 1135 to 1204, where he talks about enforcing the Noahide laws and that there's capital punishment for those who refuse to obey them. You say, where does that tie in with Christians? Well, someone would claim, although Judaism does not claim this, someone would claim that if Christians are worshiping the Trinity or Jesus as God, then that's idolatry, and under the Noahide laws, you're put to death for idolatry. Okay, so first, Judaism does not believe it is idolatry for Christians to worship God as Trinity. They call it shituf. It, it is kind of a, a cooperation of different beings, but they do not believe that it is idolatry for a Gentile. They would say it's wrong for a Jew, but it's not idolatry for a Gentile. So Judaism has no problem saying that there are righteous Christians or righteous Muslims because they're not idol worshipers and they would all affirm these basic laws. But in this one passage in Maimonides, it talks about enforcing the laws. Well, what's it talking about? Well, many rabbinic commentators understand that that was just when the children of Israel conquered Canaan. All right, so when they conquered Canaan over 3,000 years ago, that they were to offer to the people, rather than be executed, you can just follow these basic laws. Rather than us exterminating you, as, uh, as the command is, if you will just acknowledge the one true God and follow these laws, then you can live. Otherwise, Judaism has never tried to enforce these. The, the land of Israel does not enforce these today. This has never been a notion that these are to be enforced. Trump affirming them is affirming basic principles of righteousness for all human beings, which every Christian should say, every Christian should say, yeah, of course, we agree with this. There's no argument. So this is another anti-Semitic myth. This is another myth that the Jews want to impose these laws and then behead people that don't. It, it, is, it is so out there. It is so bizarre. That's why I used the hyperbole I did to say that, that it's more truth than saying Santa Claus personally delivered presents to everybody in America last year, every kid in America. It's, it's utter and complete nonsense, but it's the big lie spread around these days. And, oh, well, Ben Shapiro is an Orthodox Jew, so Ben Shapiro must believe this. And, oh, these other Jews, they all must believe this. And it is another anti-Semitic libel that's spreading And uh, the fact you're asking about it, I'm hearing it left and right, and we've got to dispel this nonsense. Nonetheless, this will be used to produce more hatred against Jews. That's how the devil works. He spreads these lies, and it undermines truth. It's a shame, but it happens. Now, now let me just say this last thing, Karen. There's a movement called B'nai Noach, and there are Christians who've fallen away from the faith that follow this, and others that follow it which is to say, hey, this is what God requires of Gentiles, that we follow these basic laws, and we do, and we worship the God of Israel, the one true God. And obviously for Muslim, they worship Allah, but a a traditional Jew would say, fine, you can be a righteous righteous Muslim by following these laws and principles. So there is a a movement as well, but it has nothing to do with enforcing anything or penalties for those who don't live by it. Hey, Karen, thank you very much for asking your question. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go back to Michigan. Kareem, thanks for calling the line of fire. Um, Hello. Hello. 
Hi. Um, I just had a question because uh, I was in your comment section the other day on one of your videos, and uh, this Jewish guy was having an argument with a Christian, and he said this quote that was in the Bible, and he used it against uh, Jesus, I guess, to say that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. And I was just hoping you could clear it up for me. And, you bet. Uh, I could tell you the quote. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the quote was Zechariah uh, chapter thirteen six, and it says, uh, "And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, Those which uh, with those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends." Right. So the point was that Christians will quote that as a messianic prophecy, whereas in fact. This is an idol worshiper who's being exposed so that it was actually Jesus being exposed as being idolatrous or something like that. That was the argument? Um, I don't. I think what he was trying to say is that he was explaining that the wounds of the Messiah, like in Isaiah 53, weren't actually from a cross, that, he, that the wounds that the Messiah would have received in Isaiah 53 was actually uh, received in his friend's house. And I was just wondering, like, what that meant. Yeah, First Zechariah 13, that verse is not a messianic prophecy. It's not a prophecy about Jesus okay. being the Messiah. It's a prophecy about someone being exposed for idol worship. That's number one. Uh, number two, okay. th- right, number two, Christians often misquote it as if it's a messianic prophecy, but it's not. Number two, the Hebrew ben yadayim there does, does not mean in the hands. It means between the arms, so in the back. That's why some Jewish translations and others will translate it, what, what are these wounds on your back? Uh, so it's, it's, it doesn't mean in the hands, okay? It means yadayim there can be hand or arm. It's between. So what's between your arms? It's shoulders, back. So that's, that's what it's talking about. So it's, it's unrelated to that. Uh, so, uh, so very right. easy to refute that. Now the... The prophecy or the the psalm taken on by the Messiah, Psalm 22, that description there really fits well for crucifixion. And everything spoken of in Isaiah 53 really speaks well of crucifixion. It doesn't have to mean crucifixion, really speaks well of that. And then lastly, the the argument in the house of your friends, the Messiah is is rejected in the house of his friends, his own people, you know, and and, and does suffer at the hands of his friends who give him over. But Zechariah 13 sometimes quoted as a messianic prophecy when you look at the context it it really doesn't work and and then as i said uh in, in fact let me just let me just look here in uh, zechariah 13 6 and look at let's see the new jewish publication society version um yeah it translates what are those sores on your back uh so and uh, another tra- and new rsv what are these wounds on your chest Okay, why? Because it's it's between the arms, so chest or back or shoulders. That's all it's spoken of there. But thank you for the question, sir. Much appreciated. Thank you. All right. Do I have time for another call? Okay, listen, listen. Uh, Less than an hour from now, less than an hour from now, join me on YouTube. You say I've never done it. Some of you are watching right now. If you're watching on Facebook, you'll switch over to YouTube. All right, starting at 4.50 Eastern Standard Time. So that is a little under an hour from now. We'll, we'll be continuing the discussion, and I'll just be answering questions on YouTube 
only. All right. So how do you find it? If you're not familiar, if you're listening on radio or go to ask Dr. Brown, A S K D R Brown, ask Dr. Brown. That's our YouTube channel. And you'll see, we'll come on live and I'm only going to be answering questions there posted on YouTube. All right. Oh, tell you what, tell you what, Jonathan's question was Jesus impeccable, meaning was it possible for him to sin? Some would say it had to be possible for him to sin. Otherwise, he couldn't have been tempted as we were. Others say if it was possible for him to sin, he could not have been truly God at the same time that he was truly man. Remember, he was not a fallen man because he did not come direct from Adam, but through his mother, Miriam, Mary, and by the Holy Spirit. So uh, it is a theoretical argument, but ultimately... I see no possibility that Jesus could have sinned because his entire destiny was laid out from beginning to end before the foundation of the world, and he was to be the lamb without spot or blemish. However, I believe he experienced temptation in a real way. I believe he experienced it in a way that he can fully relate to us being tempted and tried and tested, yet without sin. So it is absolutely real as our great high priest that we can relate to him and he to us in the midst of our struggles, even though as a son of God in this earth, I don't see the possibility that he actually could have sinned. It doesn't mean the temptation was any less intense, the battle any less intense. All right, join me on YouTube 50 minutes from now. We'll continue with your questions there. God bless you. Change the world.